Canada is much better than other places compared to like America. Here it's not as open. Whereas in the States, it's very blatant. In Canada, it's not so much of a negative thing as much as it is in other places just because we're known for being multicultural. I feel like the issues that we deal with in Canada are like a lot less uh, intense. Come on, Canada. We're no angels. Hello and welcome to Color Code, a podcast about race in Canada from the Globe and Mail. I'm Denise Balkasun. I'm hosting on my own today because Hannah Sung is off working on next week's episode, but she will be dropping by in just a bit. Today, we're talking about a core concept of Canadian identity, comparing ourselves to the United States. It's easy as Canadians to feel overshadowed by the States if you're in Canada. There are 320 million of them and only 35 million of us. And they do tend to hog all the attention on the world stage. But I think that as much as we complain about that, we also use the United States to our advantage when we don't want to face our own problems. And that includes the problems that we have with race and racism. So let's get one thing out of the way. It's true that, like everything else over there, when it comes to racism, the United States is about drama. Last year alone, over 100 black people who were unarmed were killed by police. And in response, there were protests. There were cities under curfew. There were police forces shooting water cannons at citizens. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is running for president, and we have to hear him say that he's going to keep all Muslims out of the country entirely. So yeah, compared to that, Canada is pretty benign. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. There's a lot here that we could think about. You know, when you think of problems like segregation or enslavement, we think of those as American problems, but both of those existed here as well. Why are these facts not part of how we see ourselves as Canadians? I think one of the reasons that we don't see race and racism in the present is because we don't learn about our history. This is where Hannah's going to drop in for a minute. Hi, that's right. History. I'm here for that. Because you don't often get to go to a party to have a history lesson, but that is what I did way back last winter. The event was thrown by Historica Canada, which is the organization behind Heritage Minutes, those TV commercials that tell us all about Canadian history. They were celebrating the launch of a new one about Canadian civil rights hero Viola Desmond. She's called Canada's Rosa Parks, but she was actually like 10 years before Rosa Parks in terms of um, refusing to leave from the whites-only section of a theater in Nova Scotia. We have a Canadian heroine who nine years before Rosa Parks did essentially the same thing, if not more. In the United States, where it was so clear that there was segregation, in Canada it wasn't as clear because I think many people wanted to assume that everything was just fine. Her experience helped to underscore that everything was not just fine. Have you seen this Heritage Minute? No. It's beautifully produced. It's very, you know, there's this swelling music. It's a lot of drama packed into 30 or so seconds. What happened to Viola is she was in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, to conduct some business, and her car broke down. 
So she decided to go watch a movie. One down, please. I can't sell downstairs tickets to you people. How dare they? Obviously a racially segregated theater. She bought a ticket. She refused to leave her seat, was dragged out, arrested, and she was never pardoned until after her death. They said I didn't pay the theater tax, but it was really about color. Sister Desmond, appeal this conviction and your community will stand behind you. So what are you going to do? Make it right. Viola Desmond's case inspired Nova Scotia's civil rights movement. She was pardoned 63 years later based on the injustice of her conviction. So I'm embarrassed to say it, but if I'm going to be honest, I had never heard of Viola Desmond before that very night. But as it turns out, I wasn't the only one. What do you think about the fact that you and I both didn't know about Viola Desmond before tonight? Um, I'm actually, I'm not really surprised. We tend to focus on like the American, like history, like black American history, but we tend to ignore like our own history. When it specifically comes to Viola Desmond, I feel like there must be greater awareness of her for Nova Scotians, and now maybe more Canadians do know about her from the TV commercial. But to me, she really illustrated the difference between the way Canadian institutions create who our heroes are, especially when it comes to racial equality. Totally. In the United States, Viola Desmond would be like Harriet Tubman, who is going to be on their $20 bill in a couple of years. Whereas here, it's possible to grow up without ever knowing who people like Viola Desmond are. Exactly. Like, why is Viola Desmond our Rosa Parks? Viola came first. Why isn't Rosa the American Viola Desmond, you know? Well, I want you to hear from one of the people at that night's event. We heard from him briefly before. His name is Zach, and he gave us the phrase that inspired this entire episode. I think Canadians have a, an angel complex sometimes. An angel complex? Yeah, like I feel like, I feel like they forget that Canada played a part in like the oppression of a lot of people, like namely the Indigenous people. Did you just make up the angel complex? Because I never heard of that saying. I, th- I think I've heard it somewhere before. Um, it's like, oh, I can do no wrong or I've done no wrong. I don't know if you can tell, Denise, when you're listening to that, but I loved when he said angel complex. It's really a perfect way to summarize how Canada sees itself in comparison to the United States. Definitely. And I think on some level, we all know that. I mean, that's what our poll results seem to find, right? Well, yes, but I haven't got to the poll yet. Okay, so I'm going to leave you to it. So, to dig a little deeper, last spring, Nanos Research did a survey for the Globe and Mail about the perception of race in Canada. It asked whether or not we believed there was, quote, a lot or not much racism left here. And 69% of respondents across the country said, yes, there's a lot of racism left in Canada. 35% of people said that they themselves had said something someone else would say was racist. So according to this survey, Canadians believe we have a racism problem. So why do we think we're any different than the United States? To try and figure it out, I invited two guests into our studio. Akio Maroon is a human rights advocate based in Toronto. She's the chair of Maggie's Sex Work Action Project, and she's spoken at Black Lives Matter Toronto rallies. I'm also a single parent with a newborn here with me, um, Miss Ella Josephine. And um, I'm sorry. Would you like to introduce yourself? You like babies? I love babies. (laughs) Mohammed Hashem is a labor organizer in the greater Toronto area. I can hold a baby if you want. (laughs) 
He's on the National Council of Canadian Muslims, and he's part of Dawanet, which holds outreach programs for Muslims across Canada. For Akion Mohammed, thinking about race is professional and personal. So I put the question to them. Do you think that Canada has an angel complex when it comes to race and racism? I think that we have um, an identity issue. I traveled internationally, speak internationally, and there's a, a sort of credibility that comes with saying I am Canadian. And I think because of that, um, and also because of our neighbors, it is very easy to say that this is better than them. But racism is still woven in the fibers of this country. That is how Canada came to be. It's always easy to say, well, at least it's not as bad, but I think it's the same beast, just of a different name. You know, I think it's it's a complex question because, you know, when you look at the Muslim community experience, there's many within the Muslim community who feel, yeah, you know, it's not as bad as it is in the States, but that erases the experience of black Canadian Muslims. Mm-hmm. But for the general tone around Islamophobia, it's definitely different than it is in the States. Because uh, I know family members in the U.S. who really, you know, they wouldn't even put on the hijab, right? Because they feel like it's just... It's, it's a marker for you to get attacked. At least in Canada, you don't get that tonality where at least over here you feel when politicians talk about the Canadian Muslim experience, it's not one of othering consistently. Does that mean that we are better than Americans? I wouldn't say so. But does that mean that we're more careful about what we say and how we see ourselves? Absolutely. Do you mean careful in how we're racist so that it's not as obvious? Like, what do you mean by more careful? Yeah, of course. I mean, like, I think everybody has a certain level of racism, right? Like, to be quite frank, when I was growing up, I was born here with my first 7 to 14 in Karachi in Pakistan. When I came here in high school, my mom said, hey, you got to watch out for, you know, the, the Sikh kids or the black kids or uh, all my friends were all types of colors. And she was like, I'm not sure about your company. And it's just because, like, that's stuff that came from her back home, and she didn't know how to comprehend it. But the more experiences that you know she's had with my friends coming over and hanging out, I mean, it's definitely disarmed her. But those type of things exist in all societies, right? So I think that being careful means you know, being slightly more reflective, and being reflective is a good thing. I think for me, that's where we disagree. Um, I think that we can't talk about race and racism without talking about white supremacy. Um, I do believe everyone has some biases and has prejudice, but the word racism definitely comes from a place of power. Mm, yeah, and I, I think for me, it's it's more of covertness. It's not the racism that we see on TV and are taught that this is what racism looks like. So you won't see as a commonplace, nooses hung on trees in Canada. You won't necessarily see it as commonplace or hear that people are being lynched in neighborhoods across Canada. And that's what we are taught that racism looks like. However, racism is more subtle than that. And I've had this before at engagements that I've spoken at, and I've had folks come up to me and say, oh, you're really well-spoken. Like, what does that mean exactly? What were you expecting? Um, I'm a black single parent, and I come from several different intersectionalities. I'm an immigrant. I immigrated here on my own with no family at 17 and went to York University. So I do have, like, you know, education privilege, but that's not what people see when they see me. 
And so for them, it's a compliment to come up and say, oh, that you're really well-spoken, you're really intelligent. But for me, that's not cute, that's racism, and that's some of the subtle ways that we see it. That, you know, it's almost better to have these visible signals of oppression for people to rally against. That's a really scary thought. <laughs> That's a really scary thought. Well, plus also, I mean, I understand what you mean, but I think that those types of overt racist acts also allow people to say that more understated ones don't exist. Because I think people flock to that type of thing, right? Like, oh, someone called me this name on the street. That's wrong. Like, people will always talk about that more than they'll talk about, like, the cabinet or you know, the head of every mainstream media corporation in Canada, and now I'm going to get in trouble. But, like, um, I think that as much as it is easier to challenge those overt symbols, they also help us not look at the harder stuff. Mm-hmm. We're very complacent. I find because of Canada's immigrant culture and the history of bringing immigrants here, we get complacent with our gratitude, and that is dangerous. You know, we almost say it's okay that we are being treated this way because we have the opportunity to be here and it's not war-torn or we're not being shot at the rate of one black person being shot every 48 hours. But racism is here. And yes, it looks different here than it does in the state, but it doesn't mean that it's any less toxic. Mohammed, when was the last time you were in the States and what's it like crossing that border for you? Uh, well, last winter I was there. I, I just went down there for a few days with my wife and, and two-year-old. And um, it definitely feels like a different place. <laughs> it, I mean, when you see a person in hijab over here, no one blinks. But when you're in rural Pennsylvania, it's like people are staring you down. And, you know, I hadn't felt that in a while because I've been in this little bubble for a long time. So it just it felt really weird and unsafe. I think it's also very different. um, Toronto is a beast of its own nature. Um, We are very fortunate and I'd say even very privileged to live in the city of Toronto for a lot of reasons um, because there are so many different people from different backgrounds. But that's not the same case in Hearst, Ontario. Mm -hmm. Seven years ago, I got stared at. Actually, I walked into a restaurant and all the the, the chattering of the forks and the knives stopped. As I walked in and we sat down. So, you know, don't kid ourselves. Like our past election, Islamophobia was toted just as much as anywhere else to gain votes. And we've seen it time and time again. It's kind of like, I can't, I forgot the name of it. It's um, where you call your your neighbors to report anything that's going on. It was the, um, Just the barbaric cultural the barbaric and oh, cultural know, practices yeah. law. Yeah. And that was Islamophobic specifically. And that is Islamophobic specifically. How is that Canadian? How is it peeling back our constitutional rights? Any Canadian. It didn't lose many votes, though. No, but the fact that it was there speaks a lot of this pushback. Can you describe what the Barbaric Cultural Practices Act was for people who didn't know or maybe forgot? Sure. So uh, Kelly Leach and Chris Alexander, both ministers. Uh, Kelly was the Minister responsible for women, and Chris Alexander, the Minister of Immigration and Citizenship, uh, made an announcement to create a tip line for any Canadian to be able to report to their neighbours any suspicious activity that they find to be culturally barbaric. Uh, In essence, if you see somebody who you think looks a little bit weird, call the cops on them because they don't really belong here. 
I remember that day vividly because it was honestly felt like a punch in the gut. That moment that happened, I thought, wow, people are going to get hurt by this. Mm. So I went on Facebook that night and I just kind of spread the word out there to a few friends to say, you know, if you hear of somebody, uh, let me know. Within the next four days, I spoke to about 26 women who had been either attacked or pushed or screamed at from the time of that announcement. And it honestly felt, that day, I honestly felt that Canada didn't want me. Mm. And I was born here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know many, many, many people felt the exact same way. And I've seen the ways in which racism rears its head in Canada. It's always in the form of saving people. So I also think that where racism is concerned, Canada has a savior complex. The Cultural Barbaric Practices Act came out and the advertisement, the way that they wanted to be portrayed is that they're saving women Mm -hmm. from these men who would have mercy killings on them for not wearing their hijabs or their saris. Um, And so I think that we have a savior complex. I work in politics, right? So I I see many of the, the way people make decisions. When the last federal election was happening and Harper was saying the firebrand terms like old stock Canadians, Mm -hmm. like the barbaric cultural snitch line, like how long did we talk about our niqab in the federal election, right? Like in order for the sitting prime minister of Canada Mm -hmm. to say these things, you know, these are things that are, you know, focus grouped, are polled, are tested, are retested. And for him to go that far out and to actually really not even lose a single vote because the conservatives did not lose, like their vote counts uh, held strong the throughout liberals. the country. Yeah. It was just the liberals that got ahead. But, and, and that tells you, and that speaks to what you're saying, uh, which is that the undercurrent of othering, it's there and it's, it's, it's very, very heavy. I'm quite grateful that we are not going through an election year currently. In the years of this more proliferant Black Liberation Front of Black Lives Matter, I'm definitely seeing a lot of Anglo-Saxon Canadians push back to say that, you know, it's just politically correctness. You know, why can't I use the N-word if you can use the N-word? I've seen a lot of pushback. Everyone thinks that Black baby's cute until that, that daughter, that child starts speaking up for its rights, start marching and start protesting and say, listen, I need you to hear me, and then stop a parade like Pride. And then all of a sudden, we're being attacked because we dare to say that we need equality, because we dare to imagine what equity in this country would look like. I've had a thousand conversations around the Black Lives Matter action and Pride. Some of them good, some of them not so good. You know, some people were like, you know, it's just already an anti-oppression march. You know, why is why are they doing so? Yes, I agree, the corporatization, blah, 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 blah. But I'm like, you know, like the one thing that kind of irks me, it's like, you know, do you think that Martin Luther King was comfortable to people? But they do. People do. I actually saw a stack going around Twitter last week that was like a year before Martin Luther King was assassinated, his approval rate among white people was 28%. And I think that that blows a lot of people's mind because they think that all along he was like a teddy bear that everyone loved. Like that's sort of the way that his image has been manipulated, I think. The discomfort is why like, I have a boss, uh, a former boss of mine, her name was Fadua Mohammed. 
like the first day of the job, I, uh, she told me, listen, your job is actually to create discomfort. Because when you're bargaining with people, having a place where people come to land that's comfortable is a continuation of the status quo. Right. Uh, in order for there to be any change, people need to feel like they gave up a little bit of something, and some people need to feel like they gained a little something. And that irk uh, needs to necessarily be there, and you need to guide people into the uncomfortable zone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what Black Lives Matter is doing, where even like stopping pride was like it was taking society into the uncomfortable zone to say, here, like acknowledge the oppression, acknowledge it. And the people were like, no, that was not right. We're not acknowledging it. And the people that was like, oh, they are making their point. This is how change happens. This is why change needs to happen. Having that internal conversation does not happen in a moment of comfort. It only happens when you put somebody in the uncomfortable zone and say, here, you're forced to deal with this. And that's why it's really actually, like, in my opinion, working and making tons of people uncomfortable. And it's great because they need to do more of it. Mm -hmm. What difference do guns and weapons make it makes a huge difference. Um, but we have to also realize that with or without guns, violence would still happen. Folks are still saying, listen, I'm being pulled over. I'm being racially profiled. That's how it started. It's just that there is more access to guns and the gun culture is more prevalent in the States. I don't necessarily think that being shot in the States by the cops is much different than being shot in gang violence here in Canada because it's just one engine of the state doing it versus the other. You know, like the way we've systemically failed kids and deprived opportunity and lowered expectations and, you know, denied employment and done all these different things as a city, as a province, as a nation to many communities, but especially to, to black communities in Canada. I think that it traumatizes. I think that when visible minorities or when racialized folks in Canada, my, my pardon, talk about the racism that they experience here, that we need to listen, that we don't need to um, punctuate it with but it's better or but it's worse or but anything. I think we need to open our ears, eyes and hearts and feel and empathize with them and try to change the ways in which we've systemically oppressed racialized folks in this country. What I really got out of that conversation was a very global perspective. You know, Akio's from Jamaica, Muhammad's family is from Pakistan. They both travel around the world thinking and talking about issues of race and identity. But like most Canadians, they've never had the opportunity to actually live in the United States, to experience what race is like there every single day. But I know a couple of people who do. Both of my brothers grew up here in Toronto with me, and both of them have moved to the United States as adults. So I asked them whether they think Canada has an angel complex. My answer is yes. That's Tony. Nine years ago, he moved to the United States, and right now he lives in Chicago. You know, Canada's not all the same, and the United States is not all the same. They're both very big countries, and the United States is an extremely populous country. And so if you have a country of over 300 million people, you're going to see very extreme examples of how racism plays out. 
you know, there might be a very violent incident. If it's animated by the same racism, it's not really fair to have an angel complex over the fact um, that, you know, maybe the same level of violence isn't played out on, on people's bodies, but the same concerns and discrimination happens. Um, you know, being in California, I haven't had any more severe experiences than I had while I was here. That's Ian. And three years ago, he moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. What kind of things have happened to you in Canada? I have had people threaten me, um, call me. They have called me, you know, racial names that aren't even the race that I am. Um, there's an assumption that I'm Indian or Pakistani or, you know. Um, so I've had people threaten me, like, um, I had one guy get out of his car and like come over and I, I can't remember specifically what he said, but there was a lot of swearing and I believe he said he was going to kill me. Um, and then he called me a racial slur. So I've had that um, in Canada. And I think you've both had experiences in the States where people didn't know what race you are. Yeah, constantly. We are obviously of like South Asian descent through Trinidad and in Toronto, this happened uh, you know, there were a lot of people um, with that same background um, for school, first in Boston and now in Chicago. Uh, a lot of people just haven't seen anyone who looks like me. Um, so, you know, in Boston, I was asked to join the you know Black Law Students Association. I was like, well, that, you guys sound like you do great things. I'd love to join, but I should be up front and let you know that I'm not black. And that surprised a lot of people. Um, and I get that at my gym right now as well. And I had somebody a couple of weeks ago say, like, there's no way you're Indian. Like, Indians don't play sports. And I was like, well, this is really weird. Like, you've never met an Indian person who enjoyed playing sports. Like, that is very, very strange to me. I think when we were in Toronto, there's a lot of diversity and people knew that they didn't know what race I was. So they might ask what race I am. Whereas now they kind of make assumptions and, and guess at it. Do you think Americans talk about race more than Canadians do? I do, yeah. You know, so you've got the Black Lives Matter and with, with everything going on with, like, Donald Trump, um, it is very much at the forefront and race is always addressed, I would say, right now. We look at the noise and drama and violence in the United States and we compare ourselves and say we're better than that. But maybe they are more able to face the pain of their history and how it plays out in the present than we are. And I don't think that constantly talking about the U.S. is a way to make Canada a better place. I think what would be good for Canada is to stay focused on what's happening here. For example, MP Kelly Leach. Our guest, Mohammed, talked about Leach's role in the proposed Barbaric Cultural Practices Act. This fall, she's making headlines again. Leach is in the running to become leader of the Conservative Party. And she's been saying that we need to screen immigrants for, quote, anti-Canadian values. She hasn't defined what those are, and she also says she isn't anti-Muslim. What do you think? Send us a voice memo and let us know. This week's episode was produced by me, Denise Balkazoon, and Hannah Sung, with technical production by Timothy Moore and Melissa Tate. Our senior producer is Kevin Sue, and Lizanne Jutra and Cliff Lee helped out as well. Special thanks to our interview subjects, Muhammad Hashem and Akio Maroon, as well as my brothers Ian and Tony. And thanks to the Toronto band Bonjay for their song Stumble as our theme. If you enjoyed this episode of Color Code, rate and review it on iTunes. Subscribe, then share it with a friend. We'd also like to hear what you think. 
Whip out your phone, record a voice memo, and tell us whether you think Canada has an angel complex about race. Email us that voice memo at colorcode at globamail.com. You can look us up on Twitter. I'm at Balkazoon, and Hannah is at Hannah Sung. Thanks so much for listening to Color Code. 